New Species, the podcast where we talk to scientists about their discoveries of organisms that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We talk to the authors of these studies to get behind-the-scenes stories, to talk about why these discoveries should matter to everyone, not just scientists, and to help people better understand the wonderful biodiversity of our planet. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast. You're listening to New Species, the podcast where I talk to scientists about their discoveries of new species that they recently described. I'm your host, Brian Patrick, and today we're joined by Dr. Shahan Durkarabetian. Dr. Durkarabetian is a postdoctoral fellow at the Museum of Comparative Zoology in the Department of Organismic and Evolutionary Biology at Harvard. He's here today to talk to us about his paper published in the current issue of Invertebrate Systematics, wherein he and his co-authors described two new families of harvestmen, or daddy longlegs, as well as a new genus in each of those families, and even better, a new species in each of those new genera. Welcome, Shahan. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here on this podcast. And I am very happy to have you on here. You are one of my dearest friends in the arachnological world, and we are good friends outside of even that. So I'm happy to be able to have you on here and joining us today. We had one of the people you currently work with and one of your co-authors on here on episode two. That's Gonzalo Girabet, also at Museum of Comparative Zoology there at Harvard. And I asked him the same question, uh, but just for people who may not be listening to all the different podcasts, can you tell us how are harvestmen, and sometimes these are called daddy longlegs, and in the professional world, we call them apileonids. How are harvestmen, daddy longlegs, apileonids, how are they different from spiders? Because they are not true spiders, right? No, they are not. So... Apilionids are often confused with spiders because a lot of people equate, when you say arachnid, they think spiders. That's the first thing. So they're very different morphologically from spiders. Uh, so first, spiders have two body parts. They're kind of like an eight. Spiders also have fangs and venom, and they make silk. Apilionids or harvestmen, those two body parts are fused into a single, in single body part. They're pretty much a ball with legs, and they have no fangs, no venom, and they do not make silk. So that, that myth about daddy long legs, which is apparently pretty common, about them being the most venomous thing, but they just can't bite you, is completely false. So spiders but, and, yeah. But Shahan, I can find that in 10 different places on the internet. Doesn't that make it true? <laughs> Absolutely not. You have to be careful of what you see on the internet. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, I'm not sure where it started, to be honest, because to me growing up on the West Coast, daddy long legs were always the spiders, not apileonies. So it was kind of new to me that that was a, a story. But anyway, so apileonies and spiders are actually really divergent. They are over 500 million years divergent from each other. So quite, quite different. Uh, another thing that's pretty unique about apileonies is they have repugnatorial glands. And these are essentially defensive secretions. So if you, if you poke them or bug them or if somebody tries to bite them, they will release a chemical cocktail. Uh, that smells bad and tastes bad as a way to escape predators. Tell us a little bit about these things. All right, so we, we got an idea of what the, you know how they're different from spiders. Tell us a little bit about them. What, how big are they? Uh, where are they found? That sort of thing. Because the title of your paper doesn't give us a huge clue to it. It just says that you have uh, new families, genera, and species within the trionon... Uh, you're going to have to say it. Triononychidae? Triononychidae, yeah. Well, the, triononychidae. the pronunciation depends on who you ask. <laughs> <laughs> So where do we find these things? What are, tell us about them. How big are they? What color are they? Any cool big bumps on them? Anything like that? So in general, apileonies are pretty diverse. The, this group, Trinonychidae, 
they're mostly found in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, so I'll, I'll kind of discuss that family in a bit. But so in general, Apiliones are very diverse. Body size, they range from half a millimeter to, you know, with legs, though, the size of your hand. So they're highly variable. Most of them are kind of brownish, tannish color, including most of the trinonychids. Uh, but the tropical species come in all sorts of colors. You can find them all over the planet, every continent except for Antarctica. Uh, they've even made it out to oceanic islands like the Crozet Islands. And so some are pretty common. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's Sorry, an there's an inside joke with the Crozet <laughs> Islands on that for people who are listening. Go ahead, Sean. I'm sorry. He, so, he, I started laughing, and that made him start to laugh. I apologize for that. Go ahead, please. So uh, most of the species are relatively cryptic. You have to find them underneath rotting logs and rocks and in caves. There are a group like the, the true daddy long legs, like the long-legged species. Those are pretty common, and you can find them running around the forest at particular times of the year. But the ones I've been working on are fairly cryptic. You have to dig for them to find them. You have to flip logs in, in forests, or you have to do work at night. If you work at night, they'll kind of come out and will hang out on the, on the leaves and on the trees. Uh, but for the most part, they're pretty hidden. Um, and what about these new species? Are they, are they fairly cryptic or are they brightly colored? Because there are some species, that, for example, from like Chile and some other places that are, have really bright colors on them bright oranges and even some reds and that sort of thing. What about these? Are these the drab ones or are they somewhere in between? Yeah, so most of most of the trinike, like the new species, like most of the trinikids are pretty drab colored. So one of the new species is completely yellow because it's found in a cave. And the other one has yellow and shades of tan and brown. It's a bit more multicolored, but still relatively muted in terms of the, the broad diversity of colors found in Apiliones. Where, so you mentioned one of these is found in a cave, and where's the other one found? Is it just in forest floor area? or? Yeah, so the vast majority of trinonychids are found in, in temperate forests underneath logs and, and rocks. Right. So this one is essentially the typical typical habitat for, for this, th these sorts of uh, apiliones. And I don't think you mentioned it for these two new spe specifically for these two new species. Uh, so basically they're a marble with legs. How, how big is the body part? So both of these species are, are on the smaller end of Apiliones, and they're about a millimeter to two millimeters. The females are typically a little larger than the males, which is kind of typical for Apiliones, but these are still relatively small-bodied. Yeah, one or two millimeters, that's definitely smaller. And here in North America, we're used to seeing ones that are closer to a centimeter or more hanging out on the side of a house or a barn or something like that. In fact, they probably then would be easily confused with something like a mite, right, if you're not sure what you're looking for? Yeah, some of them, there's actually a, a group, uh, the group that Gonzalo specializes in uh, are called mite harvestmen because they look very much like mites. Um, but yes, it's, it's a, lot, a lot of times it's that, it's that fused body and kind of small, small body size and short legs that will often confuse them with uh, uh, mites. What are these things doing ecologically? So now we know where they're found. We know about how big they are. What are they actually doing in the world? What do they eat? What kind of, you already mentioned the habitat, but what's their function in the ecosystem? So as a whole, they fill many ecological roles and functions. Uh, so there are some that are more detritivores. They live in the leaf litter and they kind of eat decaying organic matter. And in, in that way, they're kind of like, they're kind of like cows. Uh, and there are others that are opportunistic scavengers you know they'll they'll just kind of be wandering around and if they find something dead on the ground they'll start eating that so 
in in some way they're like like vultures almost um many of course are prey items for other animals particularly vertebrate animals like birds and mammals but when they are prey they don't they don't they don't give up easily they they do put up a fight with their defensive secretions and i think most importantly many of them are predators in the particular in their particular micro ecosystem that they live in so for example in leaf litter Apillionis will typically be one of the top predators feeding on smaller invertebrates. And there are, of course, others that are recorded to eat fungus and fruits. So as a whole, they kind of eat everything and they do a lot of things. And what do we even know about these two new species? Like, What are the ones from the caves eating and then the other ones in the leaf area, the, for, specifically for these two new ones? Do we have any idea? So, No. As a whole, we know a lot about Apillionis, but when we get down to the species level, we know next to nothing about the vast majority of species other than what they look like and where they're found. What we know about these new species, we have to assume based on the kind of cohesive knowledge of Apillionis in general. We assume that they are predators. They have the morphological features like spines on their pedipalps that they use to capture prey, smaller prey items. So we can assume that they are the predators in their ecosystem, certainly in the cave with very limited, a very small food web, but also in, you know, kind of the forest leaf litter habitats. And just to clarify for listeners, pedipalps, so arachnids, particularly spiders and apillionids, typically are eight-legged creatures. And then if you look near the front, up near the eyes, there's normally two small leg-like things. Those are what we call the pedipalps. And they can be modified for a variety of purposes, anywhere from prey capture to reproduction to, I, I don't know, lots of different things, I suppose, huh? Yeah. So in, in this particular group of apillionis called laniatories, which is the group I, I focus on, those pedipalps are modified as prey capture tools where they're typically covered in, in spines. It's almost like when they, when they close their pedipalps around their prey, it's kind of like a, a cage that they capture them in with these spines that kind of hold the prey in there while they can eat it. So it's pretty it's pretty brutal, actually. <laughs> and they actually form this kind of weird little Z shape to them. So when they do that, when they close on it, it's almost like closing a pair of pliers on it, right? So they reach out and then grab with the front two portions and grab it like a pair of pliers would be picking up something. So, yeah, and then impaling it potentially along the way if they're really soft-bodied, right? Yeah, it's almost like uh, the praying mantis arms, how praying mantis will, right. will catch prey. Right. You know? Yeah, that's a cool picture in your brain. Praying mantises that have eight legs and f- and run around and then fly. That's a, that sounds like something that people talk about, like flying spiders. No, that's not real. <laughs> it's definitely sci-fi material. You didn't just describe two new species. Each new species is in a new genus, and each of those two new ge- genera are in a new family, right? Correct. How did you determine not only that they were new species, but new genera and new families? So it's kind of a complicated story. This, this group has a really complicated taxonomic history, but I'll try and simplify it a bit. So this, this, this paper is much a story about the new families as it is about the family Trinonychidae. So based on a previous analyses from morphological and genetic work, we, we kind of had an idea that some genera within Trinonychidae were either not part of this family or were morphologically different enough to be considered distinct families. So going into this, we knew that the classification associated with this family and superfamily was flawed, but we needed more data to confirm this. The previous studies were either based on a few genes or just morphology. So we we needed more data to kind of back this up. And 
when we kind of came across uh, these new species in the collections and people sending us uh, these new species, it gave us that further push to do to revise the classification because we knew it was flawed and we didn't want to put these new species in new genera into a flawed taxonomy. So before we did this work, the superfamily Trinonychoidea included two families. First, the family Synthetonychiidae, which has 14 species and is only found from in New Zealand. And then there's also the family Trinonychidae, which is much more widespread, has about 500 species, and is mostly known from the southern hemisphere, except for a few odd genera in the northern hemisphere. So though those taxa in the northern hemisphere were morphologically distinct enough to be given their own tribe within the, the family Trinonychidae. And tribe is just another taxonomic rank in, below family, but above genus. It's just a way to kind of organize things better. Those taxa in the northern hemisphere were, were morpho morphologically distinct enough to be given their own tribe, which was called Bumerinoini, based af after one of the, the genera. So this, this tribe uh, included multiple genera, uh, one being called Fumontana, which is from Eastern North America, another genus called Bumerinoa, which was only known from caves in Sardinia, and Flavonuncia, a genus known from Madagascar. So our data confirmed the morphological, previous morphological work, and to show that this group was related to each other and very distinct genetically and on a very long branch in the, in the Apiliones tree of life. So this gave us all the evidence we needed to kind of say, okay, this is distinct enough to be a, a new family by itself. And so the name, the family name Bumerinoidae is actually derived from the tribe name, which was given by Karaman in 2019. So he is actually, based on the rules of taxonomic nomenclature, he is the author of that family because he's the one that first recognized it as a, as a distinct group. So in, in this particular family, we, we, uh, we found that one of the new genera, which we called Turonychus, was grouped within, these, within this Bumerinoidae uh, family. So uh, that gave us, you know, so we knew where it was placed at the family level. And we, based on morphology and, and of course, genetic data, we concluded that it was a, another distinct genus. So uh, it includes one species, Turonychus fadricae, which is only known from a single cave in Spain. So this species name is, is, was in honor of the, the person who found it and collected it and sent, sent it to us, uh, Florin Fadrique. And so um, we named it after him to kind of, because it's a really kind of important discovery. And the genus name actually refers to the geographic region, which was called Teruel. And if something is from this region, it's called Turolens. So Turo being the prefix. And we took Onychus, which is the suffix. And it's a very common suffix in this group of apiliones and that is derived from the greek word onyx referring to claw and this gets at uh the tarsal claw on the hind legs at the very tip of the hind legs which was a common character used historically to kind of define groups oh okay so this one's yeah. from spain yeah okay. so this is part of the bumerinoidae which is the northern hemisphere group okay Great. which is also another reason we decided to split it off from trinonychidae because to us, Trinonychidae is a southern hemisphere group only with these random, with these kind of odd taxa from the northern hemisphere. So we split it into two just to make it more uh, biogeographic sense. 
as well. And it's not just because you you think that just because they're North and South Hemisphere. I mean, you had, as you explained, other evidence for that. The morphology, which is the shape of these things, kind of like how humans look different from chimps, but chimps look different from apes, that sort of thing. So you're looking at the shapes of these things, you know, you're able to see like these are distinct. And you looked at genetic data to go with these, right? Yes. The multiple, like in any taxonomic decision, there's multiple lines of evidence that should go into kind of making changes like this. And there was enough to qualify family level uh, name for this. Let's talk about the other family, because I know this is the one where you're going to get excited because I know (laughs) that there's some specific reasons why you did a few of the namings in here. So let's start at the family level. Let's talk about your other family. How did you decide that that, I'm assuming you used the same method for determine that was also a family. So let's jump right down to the genus. How'd you pick the name for that genus? Yeah. So this genus, uh, we called Abaddon, which has one species, Abaddon despoliator. And so the genus name, so first this genus is only known from Western Australia, from a very few localities. We have maybe like five or six specimens total. But anyway, so this, this, this species is distinct because it's covered in spines and tubercles. And I chose the name Abaddon despoliator because it was entirely my idea because one of my favorite hobbies is this sci-fi game and universe called Warhammer 40k. It's a tabletop sci-fi game with armies and lots of dice and strategy and rules. <laughs> but one of the characters, one of the main characters in this in this Warhammer 40k universe is called Abaddon the Despoiler. He's kind of the leader of the of the chaos army that's trying to destroy the the stale and stagnant Imperium. I can go on forever about the story. But anyway, <laughs> so I chose that because this character is typically portrayed in, in pictures and drawn covered in spikes and various sharp things. Like he has a weapon that's essentially talons. And so the, the morphology of this new species covered in spines it made me think about Abaddon. Also because I really wanted to name something after Warhammer 40k because it's kind of an important thing in my life. So that's kind of why I, I named it after Abaddon. And so it's obviously one of the species I had a little, species names I had a little fun with. So, and it was unexpectedly quite well received in the, the Warhammer 40k community. So it was a success all around, I think. So for people listening, yes, scientists do do other things besides <laughs> science. Once in a while, we do play other games. <laughs> and Warhammer 40K happens to be one of Shahan's favorite games. I can tell you from experience talking to him, he loves to talk about it because he, he's just really into it. Uh, and, and that's great. We need to have hobbies as well. And it's great when we can bring in new ways to name species that will actually increase, as you just pointed out, increase the interest in science in general in a crowd that doesn't normally think much about that. Yeah. Or, or at least some members of it don't think about it much. Yeah, that's kind of the, one of the the benefits of kind of bringing in these pop culture references is, to me, I was able to reach a community of people that I, I identify with, but expose them to something that they may have never heard of or never seen otherwise. And it actually, you know, this got a lot of uh, attention on social media. Like, I, I'm not one for attention myself. So my brother, who actually is really into 40K as well, he's the one who posted it on on Facebook in the Warhammer group, and it got so much attention. And I was able to engage with a lot of people that way to talk of science and kind of get a lot of positive feedback from people who thought this was such a cool idea and were asking questions about it, about something they had never heard of before. And 
It actually made on its bo- way On up. both sides of this, because there are people who are like, what is Warhammer? And then the people in Warhammer are like, what are Apillionids? <laughs> yeah. Like, what are these Harvestman things? <laughs> exactly. It's also a way to talk to scientists about a hobby of mine, Warhammer. And I've actually been able to, other scientists say, hey, I didn't know you were into Warhammer. So am I. And I've actually connected a bit more with a few other arachnologists because they also play games like this. So it's kind of a, a good way to kind of bridge these communities together. One of the methods that you used, your molecular methods, to, to define things, in the past on the podcast, we've talked about it at least in two other episodes, people use DNA barcoding to help uh, define the species they have. You went with a technique that's, that's quite a bit more advanced and gets you quite a bit more data, which is part of the reason why you were able to go so deep and get all the way down to the family level. You use something called ultra-conserved elements, UCEs. What are these and how, how, how are they used? So as you mentioned, UCEs are short for ultra-conserved elements. And these are regions of the genome that are highly conserved, meaning there's very little variation in, in the DNA sequence across very divergent taxa. So I use what we call an arachnid UCE probe set. So these UCEs, these ultra-conserved elements, were based on regions of the DNA with high similarity across arachnid genomes. So when we're designing a UCE probe set, we line up these genomes, these DNA sequences, and we identify regions that are highly similar across spiders, scorpions, apiliones, and we can design what we call probes to target these regions. And these probes are just short sequences of DNA that are designed to match these conserved regions across these divergent taxa. So we can design these probes for hundreds and thousands of conserved regions across the genomes. And when we mix these these probes, this probe set, with DNA from any arachnid, we can specifically pull out these conserved regions, target them, pull them out, and sequence them. So we're able to get hundreds and thousands of genes for relatively cheap. Not only have you been able to do that hundreds and thousands of genes cheaply, but you've been able to get them from specimens that are really old. DNA degrades with time. And yet, for some reason, some of these UCEs manage to stick around in specimens. I'll, I'll let you talk about it, but how stick around in specimens to be quite old. Just how old have you been able to pull DNA out of and actually find it useful? DNA degrades over time, and early collections specimens were put in low percentage ethanol, which is not good for DNA preservation. So the DNA breaks down and becomes smaller and smaller fragments. And the reason UCEs work for degraded specimens is because of the probes. These probes are 120 base pairs or 70 base pairs long. And so if the DNA is fragmented because of natural degradation and these probes are already small in size, it increases the the chance of targeting fragmented UCEs. Uh, The oldest specimens, so in this study, a few of the specimens were museum specimens. And the oldest one in this particular study was collected in, I believe, 1899. So over 100 years old, we were able to sequence the DNA from this specimen and include it in the phylogeny. But in general, uh, the oldest specimen I was able to sequence usable DNA from was a specimen collected in 1865. So we're able to go (laughs) past... But where in 1865? That's the best part of the story. Where was that (laughs) specimen from? So this specimen, it's kind of a nice historical... uh, fact here. This specimen was collected in 1865 from Lexington, Virginia. 
So if you're familiar with history, you know that the U.S. Civil War ended in 1865, pretty much near Lexington, Virginia. And it tells us <laughs> being able to sequence this specimen from that time tells me something really important is that shortly after the Civil War ended, the biologists were running around these battlefields, former battlefields, collecting apillionis and preserving them, which is, I think, very, very cool. But wasn't it even real close to Appomattox, the actual area where they signed the the truce? Yeah, it's it's fairly close. Um, it's fairly close. I, I forget the exact locality, but it's you know the the older the farther back you go in time, the more general the locality information sure. is. And you know it's like near Lexington. I, I believe it may have even said uh, Appomattox itself. Uh, but yeah, it was fairly close to that that particular site where they they ended the, the Civil War, where it officially ended. I just picture Grant and Lee standing there, shaking hands, signing the truce documents, and then there's somebody who looks a lot like Shahan Durkarabetian running around in the background with a little vial collecting opilionids while this mag- magnificent event of peace is happening. Like, yeah, but science doesn't stop. I still got to get this specimen right over here. <laughs> yeah, that, that's pretty much that. That's what I find interesting about it, you know. And who knows? Maybe there was maybe there were Apillionis running around and like running over their shoes as they were signing these papers, you know. And and you were able to get DNA from them. Yes. So we were able to get you know the the farther the farther back in time, the less DNA you get. So modern specimens were able to get maybe eight hundred genes from a specimen. That particular specimen, we were only able to get six. And you can say, oh, that's not that much. Or you can say, wow, that is six genes from a specimen that's 150 years old that we never thought we could sequence. And it was enough to put it into the phylogeny, the the Opilionis tree, and put it exactly where we expected to find it. It wasn't that long ago, even within the last 15 or 20 years, that sequencing and, and using and kind of building the tree of life off for six or seven genes was considered pretty advanced using six or seven genes. Like, wow, that's a lot of genes. So now we, you know, six or seven genes, people will almost scoff at and be like, oh, that's hardly anything. So we've made a lot of technological advances along the way. Why is it important for people to know about these little harvestmen that you've just described? And is there anything we can learn specifically from the ones that you just described that we can apply elsewhere that you know of? I think it's important for people to to know these harvestmen species and any species to give them a connection to nature, because I think that's kind of increasingly lacking in, you know, society in general. But what can we learn? So there, there, are, there are two things I'll, I'll bring up. First is these apilionis tend to be good indicators of forest health. The more disturbed a forest is, and by disturbed, I mean invasive plant species or increased human use. Uh, logging, so the, things like that. Yeah, yeah, logging or you know, recently logged forests, the more disturbed a forest is, the less Apilionis diversity there is. For, for I'll give a little example. There was a, a while I lived in Oregon uh, for a couple years on, on the West Coast, and I did a lot of field work there. And Oregon is really green. There's a lot of forest uh, with varying levels of disturbance. There's old growth forest that is essentially pristine. And then there's, of course, like city parks that are highly disturbed. And so in Oregon, Oregon itself is fairly diverse and including four Apilionis. And in any given place, you can find five, six, seven genera of Apilionis in, in, a, in a good forest. Genera, not just species, but genera, a yeah. level above, right? Yeah, genera. And in slightly disturbed forest, 
I noticed there were certain species that would not be found, even though they would they were expected to be there. And so there was one species in particular called Sclerobunus non-dimorphicus that was my indicator of a forest's health and level of disturbance. It was always the first one to disappear. If I went to a place and found four of the five genera and that was the one that was missing, I knew that that forest was slightly disturbed. And so that was kind of a gauge for me to assess forest health. And that idea can apply to any habitat anywhere. Uh, across the world. And the second reason I think they're they're important uh, is that there's high potential for to benefit humans. As I mentioned before, apiliones have this chemical defense and they secrete this chemical cocktail with many interesting chemicals, some of which are completely new. And so it's entirely possible that one of these chemicals is from a new or undiscovered or even a species currently described is has medical importance for humans. And maybe one day, one of these new chemicals can, can save lives. But we won't know that until we find the species, describe them, and, and study them in greater detail. Yeah, the first step to finding all of that is actually finding out who's there, putting a name on it, and now people can pay attention to it. Because honestly, as you pointed out, these things have been here for millions and millions of years. They've just escaped human notice. And once they are on the human radar, then we can start trying to bioprospect these things for new chemicals. There's also, and I like your first answer as well, there's, there's intrinsic value in just appreciating nature. That's a theme that many of the people I've asked this question have stated. There is intrinsic value in just appreciating nature, and we are losing connection with that. For me, that is, that is the most important aspect of, of doing this work is because I... I appreciate this life. I appreciate this biodiversity, but often that doesn't work for the general public at, at large. And you have to kind of appeal to the broader interests. And it, it easily happens with apiliones, in my opinion. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know that as a postdoctoral fellow, particularly in a place that is as uh, demanding as Harvard, that finding time to do something like this can be challenging. And I appreciate that you've taken the time and, of course, your enthusiasm and, and just general glee for working with Apilionids is, is quite nice and refreshing to hear. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate your time, Shahan. Oh, thank you, Brian, for having me. And thank you for, for doing this podcast. It's, I think it fills a much-needed niche in terms of, of podcasts. So thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Thanks again. <coughs> Once again... Dr. Shahan Durkarabetian's paper is in the March issue of Invertebrate Systematics, and the title of the paper is Phylogenomic Reevaluation of the Trinonychoidea and Systematics of Trionychidae, Including New Families, Genera, and Species. The paper is currently available as open access for the month of March. See the episode details for a link to his paper. To learn more about Dr. Durkarabetian, follow him on Twitter at S. Durkarabetian. Again, that's at S-D-E-R-K-A-R-A-B-E-T-I-A-N. And Shahan wants you to challenge him with pictures of apilionids from around the world for him to identify. So go on to Twitter with your picture of apilionids from around the world and at S. Durkarabetian, and he will do his best to identify them with this Twitter challenge. Be sure to follow New Species on Twitter, at Podcast Species. And like the podcast on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash New Species Podcast. 
And if you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast.